Good morning, I'm Chris Williams, and today on Fordham Conversations is all about Christmas. On this week's show, Fordham professor Maureen Tilly tells us all about Christmas traditions and the stories behind them. Some you might know, but some maybe not. From the horrifying folkloric Krampus to the reason we celebrate on December 25th and why we exchange presents. Dr. Tilly is a professor of theology and medieval studies. So you know a lot about Christmas. What got you interested in in learning about the different traditions and things like that? Well, I've always been interested in folklore and in why people do the crazy things they do. So what are some of the things that you found that surprised you about some of the Christmas traditions we might have? A lot of it wasn't so much a surprise as, oh my goodness, that's why we do what we do. Uh, One of them is the Feast of St. Nicholas, which is actually December 6th, but is a kind of mini Christmas in which St. Nicholas comes and brings gifts to good little children, and Schwarzwitter, or Krampus, uh, gives them punishment or coal in their stockings. And when I was a kid, we would always compare how much coal we got, and the worst child in the family got the biggest lump of coal at the bottom of their shoe or stocking. Uh, So I think that made me interested in what was behind all this. So uh, that's when I started to look at stories of St. Nicholas. For example, the whole idea of Santa coming down the chimney comes from the idea of St. Nicholas rescuing three young girls who would have been fated to be sold into slavery or prostitution by their poor parents. But St. Nicholas threw three bags of money down the chimney so that they could have a dowry and be married honorably. Or there's the story of the three little boys that St. Nicholas rescued. They had been taken by an unscrupulous restauranter who chopped them up and made them into food. And when the parents came to the restaurant, uh, they found the food quite strange. And St. Nicholas walked in, uh, took the food back to the kitchen, threw it all in a a pot, and uh, reconstituted their missing children. So why do you think that these stories have such dark origins? You know, uh, you just mentioned prostitution and cannibalism. (laughs) Um, I think there's something to be said for scaring the bejesus out of little kids in a safe situation. Have you ever watched a a really scary movie and kind of peeped out from between your fingers? This is a way of saying, I'm scared, I'm scared, but it's going to be okay. And then if you survive this scare or that scare, you know when the next one comes, you're going to be okay. So for someone who might not be familiar with what the Krampus is, can you just explain it a little in terms of what he looks like and what he does? Uh, The Krampus is person or a thing who accompanies St. Nicholas in his rounds to reward good children. The Krampus punishes bad children. The Krampus has many varieties of images. Most of them look something like a devil. And, and what will he do to bad children? 
Um, the tradition is that either he punishes them physically by taking them out and whipping them, or he gives them quote-unquote gifts that are not really gifts. While the good children get pieces of fruit and nuts and chocolate in the tradition, the bad children get a lump of black coal. One of the things I've noticed in the past few years is that, especially with the Krampus, it's kind of blown up a little bit in pop culture. You see it on TV shows now, and there's a Krampus beer. It's kind of all over the Internet, and I was just wondering, why do you think that? I think it's a fascination by folks with um, death and evil, and playing with death and evil says, I'm going to be okay. It's really okay. So you grew up believing in the Krampus, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, My mother's family came from uh, eastern Pennsylvania, where one of the children would be taken outside, one of the older boys, and you would hear whipping and screaming, and all the rest of the children swore they would be good for the for the next whole next year. Mm-hmm. So, did you ever get coal some years? Just little, little pieces. <laughs> I was the good child. As I was looking into different Christmas traditions, you know, I was particularly taken by the story of the Krampus. So I was looking into it more, and and there are sort of variations of him throughout other countries, like um, in Germany, it's the Belsnickel or or something yes. like that. So why do you think that in America, in currently, we that didn't kind of cross over that idea of a uh, Christmas Punisher, so to say? I think the Christmas Punisher works only in a theological context in which your good deeds or your bad deeds would go re, be rewarded or punished. If you come from a Calvinist or Reformed Church tradition where... God decides ahead of time who is damned and who is saved. Uh, the motivational purposes of a Krampus, Belsnickel, uh, Schwarzbieter, another variation, just don't work as well. So I think with the uh, early English settlers in the United States, this just didn't transfer over. Uh, it only transferred over among ethnic groups who had had it in Europe. One of them is the Dutchman who accompanies Santa Claus, Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Um, he's known as Schwarzbieter, Black Peter. And currently in Holland, there is a big controversy about whether the uh, men who dress up at St. Nicholas should be accompanied by Schwarzbieter because there's feelings in, among some of the Dutch that this is a manifestation of racism. But the roots of Schwarzbieter go back far before the Dutch had a colony in Suriname that was populated by uh, African Americans. It goes back to the idea that the devil is dark-skinned, and that whole idea uh, comes from the earliest phases of Christianity in the 200s already. In the early 200s, we have the devil being depicted as a swarthy Egyptian. But Black Peter isn't evil, right? He's just one of Santa's helpers? Uh, He's Santa's helper, but he's uh, highly associated with Belschnickel and uh, uh, other devilish figures. 
And when you are talking to children about the person who brings the good things versus the person who brings the bad things, the bad thing, the person who brings the bad things is associated with evil. Here comes Krampus, here comes Krampus, yeah, 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 yeah. Here comes Krampus, here comes Krampus, yeah, 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 yeah. He will put you in a barrel, hit you with his sticks. I'm Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today on the show, Professor Maureen Tilly gives us the stories behind Christmas traditions. So what can you tell me about some of our other more traditional Christmas um, things, like the Christmas tree, for instance? Um, The Christmas tree was not originally a Christmas custom, uh, not a Christian custom, but was a North European custom that came to England and to what became the United States in the 16 and 1700s when people brought uh, Northern European traditions of an evergreen as a symbol of hope, especially one that's lit with candles and and brightness. Similarly, on the Feast of St. Lucy in December, December 13th, uh, in Scandinavian countries, young ladies wear wreaths with candles on them and uh, sing songs and offer people the equivalent of hot cross buns. These are all symbols of light, which is essential the farther north you go in Europe when the days become shorter and shorter uh, shortly before Christmas. So why do we get presents on Christmas? The idea of giving presents on Christmas goes back to a pre-Christian holiday that came at the end of the calendar year when people actually did give presents as a way of kind of ingratiating themselves with their social equals or their the people who were above them socially. And when Christians established the Feast of Christmas at approximately the same time on the calendar, they thought not of giving gifts to one another, but of the ultimate gift of God to humanity in the Savior Jesus. And so people began to give presents out of habit, but also with the overlay of God gave the very best present. That brings us to the story of Befana, which is a Southern European story, and that is when the three kings were going to visit Jesus, they met a a little housewife who said, oh, you're going? Well, I can't go. I'm sorry. I have to clean house. And they said, no, no, come with us. And she said, no, no, cleaning house is really important. And so the Bafana was left behind. And after the wise men left, she thought the better of it. So she got her presents together to give to the baby Jesus. And she couldn't find the three kings. And she couldn't find the baby Jesus So she kept traveling around and giving little children presents in the hopes that one of them was the baby Jesus. So in some Italian communities, it's Befana who brings the presents rather than St. Nicholas or the Three Kings or Santa Claus. We've talked about a a few folkloric creatures from Christmas, Mm -hmm. um, specifically the Krampus and the Italian witch and Black Peter. Are there any more that that come to mind? Well, there's elves, elves as helpers of Santa Claus. Uh, the 
Northern European tradition and the Irish tradition is that there are um, little people who help or hinder uh, human beings. And the feeling was that if Santa was to give gifts all over the world or even all over the town, he needed helpers, and the natural helpers would be those spiritual beings that already existed uh, in the folklore, that is, elves. One of the things that you mentioned was that the Puritans of New England banned Christmas. Yes. So can you tell me about that? Uh, The Puritans of New England came from both England and and Holland after a short stay there when they were persecuted in England. And their religious tradition says just the Bible, just pure Christianity. And their idea was that a lot of the festivals associated with Christian holidays really had pagan roots, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So they banned festivities they thought had pagan roots, including Christmas. Uh, Remember, Christmas trees and Christmas lights have nothing to do with Jesus, nor is Christmas mentioned in the New Testament as a Christian festival. It's The closest we get is something like Jesus is born on a particular date, and that date isn't even mentioned in the New Testament. So they decided that the best way to keep their religious tradition and their community uh, pure was to ban the celebration of Christmas. So no Christmas trees, no Christmas wreaths, no religious festival on Christmas Day, only Sundays. Kind of tying into that, the idea that Christmas has its roots in um, pagan traditions, is that kind of why we celebrate on December 25th? Because I think I've, just anecdotally, I've heard that historians believe Jesus was born in the springtime. Nobody knows for sure when Jesus was born. But for early Christians, it makes sense to have a festival at the end of December It's uh, nine months after they were celebrating the conception of Jesus on March 25th. And March 25th seemed to them to be uh, a parallel to the date on which the world was created. So if Jesus is the Savior of the world, it kind of made sense to them that Jesus would be conceived at a time parallel to the creation of the world. So fast forward nine months, and you get December 25th. December 25th is uh, also close to the uh, end of the year. It's close to the shortest day of the year uh, when Christians would want to recall Jesus as the light of the world, uh, the light that overcomes the annual darkness, but also the darkness of sin. And uh, non-Christians had a festival around that time called the Saturnalia, which lasted for a whole week and involved gift-giving. And Christians said, well, what's the ultimate gift? The ultimate gift is God giving us Jesus. One of the things that you said that you had something to say about was um, the abbreviation of Christmas to Xmas. Yes, the, the abbreviation of Christmas to Xmas is not a way to get Christ out of Christmas, Uh, nor is it simply a a gimmick to uh, advertise. The X in 
the abbreviation for Christmas, is actually the letter Ki or Chi, the first letter in Greek of the name of Christ. So uh, Christians could abbreviate Christmas by putting the X there, and they all knew that was for Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that that is uh, the Christian abbreviation of Christmas, not just the commercial or antichrist Christmas abbreviation. So when did that abbreviation start showing up so so much? Because you kind of see it everywhere now. Well, the X for Christ goes back to the time of the catacombs and to the time of Constantine, the Roman emperor who legalized Christianity in the early 300s. The image that he was given in a vision was what we call the Kiro. It looks like a P superimposed on an X. It's actually the first two letters of Christ. And in the Roman Empire, people were fascinated by how you could use letters as symbols. So the Kiro, or XP, which is actually the CHR of Christ, became popular even in the earliest church. I want to ask you now about a few Christmas songs, just because, you know, we sing them and we know all the words, but sometimes as we're singing them, we'll actually listen to the words and be like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure how good I'm going to be on this, but let's go ahead. Sure. I was just wondering why in the 12 days of Christmas, almost everything is some type of bird. Are they all sort of religious, though? The idea that the 12 days of Christmas has hidden religious value uh, comes from some attempts to restore the history of Christianity, especially Catholic Christianity, under the Tudor dynasty when uh, it was persecuted and people try to find hidden meaning in the song. So the song is even old, is really old. (laughs) The song goes back at least to the 1600s. What are some of the other older Christmas songs? Because I would never have guessed that it was that old. Uh, Silent Night is fairly old, about 200 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, Away in a Manger is attributed sometimes to Martin Luther, so that would go back to the 1600s. Um, there are a lot of Latin Christmas carols like Adeste Fidelis or Come All Ye Faithful that go back even farther. And some of the older ones even address kind of what we've been talking about earlier with the sort of darkness of Christmas. Because I remember, you know, there's that one song where the lyric is, Save us all from Satan's power. Yes. Uh, That's a a British Christmas carol, uh, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And that goes fairly far back. The idea here is that Christ's coming saved humanity from the darkness of sin and death. Just, I have a few more questions about Santa. You know, why does he use reindeer? Mrs. Claus, like, he was a bishop historically, so he wouldn't have been married. Oh, not necessarily. Oh, really? Bishops were married in the earliest church. St. Peter had a wife. Uh, but Mrs. Claus is a rather late invention. Mrs. Claus comes from a period when Santa has moved away from being the bishop, St. Nicholas, to being a a kindly old man who lives who knows where, in order not to have children searching for Santa, Santa was located at the North Pole. 
if Seth is located at the North Pole and he's not a bishop, there certainly could be a Mrs. Claus. And if he's located at the North Pole, he can't have horses. The horses would freeze. So he has to have a northern animal. And the most northern animals, the animals of northern Norway, Sweden, and Finland, are the reindeer. So Santa, because Santa lives in some inaccessible northern place, um, has to have reindeer. You just said something interesting that I had never really thought about before. So is that why Santa kind of doesn't reside in Europe or anything? So that kids won't run away from home sort of looking for him? (laughs) Yes, he's got to live someplace kids can't get to. And the North Pole sounded about as far away as you can get. It's a snowy place because Santa's got to be associated with snow because he comes in the wintertime. And uh, he's got this flying sled and flying reindeer. That's how he gets from the North Pole to the rest of the world. So when did kids start making lists for Santa? Kids making lists for Santa presumes some level of literacy from children. And I would think in the United States that would go back into the mid-1800s when there's more and more uh, literacy among children who are learning to read from the uh, Webster uh, Webster books, basic readers. What is it about mistletoe that makes people want to kiss each other? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How'd that come about? Mistletoe is a plant from northern Europe. It's actually a... uh, parasitic plant on oak trees, and mistletoe is, um, blooms in the winter. It grows actually on uh, a variety of trees, and hanging it in the house goes back to the pre-Christian period in uh, Britain and northern Europe when it was a plant used in Druidic uh, religious ceremonies. It was thought to have mystical powers, bringing good luck and warding off evil spirits. And in Norse mythology, um, it was a symbol of friendship. So that's where the kissing comes from. When the custom first came to Western Europe, because it was associated with the Druids, Christians tried to ban it. But eventually they said, well, kissing under the mistletoe isn't that bad. In fact, it might be an opportunity for people who had been estranged during the year to come together at Christmas and make up and be friends again. The idea of St. Nicholas and all that, it has very humble roots. And I was just wondering, you know, how did it kind of spiral into this huge thing? Uh, by huge thing, do you mean commercial? I guess. <laughs> uh, how does Santa Claus get commercialized? Uh, when people start giving lots of gifts and cards, uh, people who own gift shops can capitalize on it. If people are already giving presents, uh, commercial establishments can foster that because it's good for business. And if it's good, that's good for business, 
and people had been decorating their halls with boughs of holly. When urbanites can no longer get boughs of holly, commercial establishments can make artificial holly and artificial garlands. And if people are decorating their homes with candles because it's the middle of the winter and you want light, well, once there's electricity, why not have electric Christmas lights? Why not have candles in the window that aren't really candles, but are electric simulacra of candles? Uh, All of this breeds money for businesses. Usually around Christmas time, people send out Christmas cards Mm -hmm. or even Christmas letters where they kind of write about how their family's doing. Do do these have roots way back, or is that a more modern phenomenon? Um, Actually, the, the custom of sending Christmas cards is a British custom, and it dates back to the 1800s uh, when uh, people really had a post office that they could go to, and it became customary for people to actually send letters, not by a person who was a messenger, but by the public post. Uh, Christmas cards depends on the existence of a public post, and Britain and the U.S. were among the first countries to have a public post that uh, that people could actually use for a modest amount. So in the 1840s, the British had what was called the penny post, uh, where it cost a penny to send uh, a message. And by the 1860s and 1870s, you had corporations that were printing Christmas cards People didn't have to actually make up the cards or letters. They could go to the store and buy boxes of cards. And uh, by the 1900s, early 1900s, sending Christmas cards became very popular uh, across Europe. In France, there is a slightly different custom. You send Christmas cards only to very close friends and relatives. Otherwise, you send New Year's cards, greetings of New Year's, and you have until February 1st to do that. My own custom is I don't send Christmas cards before Christmas because that's Christian Advent um, after the finals are graded and uh, the Christmas tree is up. Uh, I send my Christmas cards during the Christmas season, which is Christmas to Epiphany, January 6th. Can you tell me about the Yule Log? The Yule log is a a log that burns a long time. And if you have a fireplace and you do your own wood cutting, you cut wood a year or so ahead of time so that it can really season and dry. And it will therefore burn a very long time as opposed to newly cut wood. And, And the idea behind the Yule log is in the darkness of winter, you want a nice, warm fire that lasts a long time. So a special log could be decorated and brought in to the house as the log of Christmas. You know, we're talking about these Christmas traditions from a sort of historical perspective. Do you think that people will kind of look back at, at some of the things happening that happen every year right now, like things like Black Friday or um a Christmas story playing 24 hours on TBS. Do you think like people will look back and say that those were our traditions? I think that people will look back on the sending of physical Christmas cards 
as an oddity in a, a time when public post is being cut back uh, to five days a week or you have to go to a, a special box somewhere uh, like a P.O. box, uh, then they'll say, well, we can send these electronically and we can embed pictures, we can embed videos. Why would anybody just send a card? That will seem kind of odd to people, I think, in 100 years. Before we go, can you just tell me um, if you have a favorite Christmas memory? I would say when I was about three years old, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I went out to the living room to look for Santa, and I saw Santa, and I went back to bed. I didn't want Santa to see me peeking, and the next morning I told my mother, I saw Santa. I saw Santa. She said, no, you didn't, but I knew as a three-year-old, I saw Santa. (laughs) Santa was real. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably a, a wonderful dream, but it was great. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Thanks for listening to Fordham Conversations. We're on every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast. You can also like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.